Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Rama Blueprints podcast. I'd like to welcome you to Bravo Women for the Arts. We are here live and we're recording today our Shut It Down, the closure of Youth Guidance Center. This is part of a series called Tres Generaciones, Three Voices. We are streaming live from Brava on Facebook Live at the Cabaret in San Francisco's Mission District. It's a chilly evening. It feels cool. It feels nice. And we're so happy to be here. In 2021, city officials acknowledge that the effort to close Juvenile Hall was dead. There are no more committees, no official conversations, no pending steps to accomplish the goal. A 150-bed facility remains open, operational, and still mostly empty. 24 young people remain locked up inside, over 50% of them that are detained are immigrant youth. Seven serious offenders that are 18 to 25 are serving up to seven years in that facility. From the leadership efforts of Shaman Walton, the Board of Supervisors voted to close YGC down. What did they do? Created a working group that involved community members, communities participated, they did focus groups, and after many meetings and discussions, recommendations were submitted. Meanwhile, young people are still locked up. Then the mayor, she creates her blue ribbon committee. They too come up with recommendations and all along, young people are still locked up. Then the chief probation leader responds with her own committee and more recommendations are given. Everyone has their findings. The community contributes, provides strategies that have been proven to be effective, interventions that they know work. Meanwhile, young people are still locked up, traumatized, criminalized, and thrown away. We all know that the long-term effects of incarceration will significantly impact them. And it will impact their spirit, their hearts, their mental health, and their overall well-being. Three reports later, three years later, 55 years later, this community still finds itself at the hands of bureaucracy. Basically, they just took the community on a wild ride, derailed the hopes of so many, a strategy that they used to detour and derail the goal to shut it down. The long-term negative effects of isolation and incarceration on young people have led to many questions. The logic of maintaining expenses to operate a facility that only is one-fourth capacity, and it costs over $300,000 per youth. Incarcerating young people is harmful. Incarcerating anyone is harmful to their being and to their humanness. The bureaucracies have pledged to place these incarcerated young people in a more home-like, supportive environment, more focus, more rehabilitation. Really? When? Maybe what we need to do is look at the dehumanization of these young people, of the individuals incarcerated. Governor Newsom, former mayor of San Francisco, made a move not alone with many advocates to shut down the California Youth Authority. They 
identified it as inhumane and dehumanizing. And here in San Francisco, that used to be one of the most liberal cities in the nation, willfully knowing that for every day and every night, young people remain incarcerated. How long will the community sit or wait and go along with what the city has proposed? What plan of action does the community have to hold the city and county accountable? Is San Francisco as liberal as it used to be? Did you know San Francisco was the first city in the nation to agree to close juvenile justice centers? Even though YGC population continued to dwindle and closure seemed logical, when will the priority and the recommendations from the community be taken serious? So here we are, like I said, 55 years later, in the same struggle, same situation, and young people are locked up. We're here today, Rama is here today, not to provide the answer, but to create a dialogue with our distinguished guests, our distinguished panelists, with the community, that hopefully will lead to encourage a proven strategy and intervention that historically the community has implemented and successed and had success with it. The answer may not come tonight or next week, maybe not even in three to five years from now, but it is imperative that we start somewhere and that we start here tonight. In 2019, we were that close to closing it down. What can we do tonight to reach that goal? So let's talk. Let's talk about it. Tonight with us, we have, to my left, the distinguished Alfredo Bojorquez. Yeah, let's give him a hand. Fred is a lifelong resident of San Francisco. He has dedicated his life over 30 years of advocacy to working with at-risk immigrant youth and their families. He's a former staff of RAP, where he himself received services, and he was exposed to community organizing. Alfredo worked at RAP for 15 years as a juvenile court liaison and on the Calle Street Outreach Team, providing direct services, gang intervention, case management, and court advocacy. Alfredo has sat on the executive committee of the JDI, Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative, and the JJPA, Juvenile Providers Association. He also was employed at Instituto Familiar de la Raza, a nonprofit community mental health and social service agency, as a youth services coordinator. He is currently employed as the court alternative specialist with the Youth Defender Unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Welcome, Alfredo Bogorges. Also with us, we have Marlene Sanchez. Otra veterana. San Francisco native Chicana, movement leader, formerly incarcerated woman, and she began her community work at 15 years old. She is the former executive director of the Young Women's Freedom Center, Marlene has also worked in leadership with Courage, Communities United for Restorative Justice. She also helped form the Alliance for Girls and is a founding member of All of Us or None. You want to give it some up? All right, here we go. She currently serves as the executive director of Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. 
We are humbled and honored to have Marlene with us today. Thank you, Marlene. And last but not least, the new generation of leadership, Priya Gomez. Priya is an indigenous mother of six. For more than 20 years, she has anchored her work in education, community organizing, youth development, and juvenile and criminal justice advocacy. She has served as a member of the leadership team at the Young Women's Freedom Center and was the former Dean of Students and School Culture at the North Oakland Community Charter. She received the Social Justice Teacher of the Year Award and is the founding member of the Sisters Warriors Freedom Coalition. She is a former leading fellow at Rosenberg Foundation as currently serves as the Senior Program Officer of Rosenberg's Foundation. Let's welcome Priya. Well, just so you all know, we did provide our panelists with the question and we're gonna give them some time now to respond and the question spoke about what brought them to this work. So we can get a feel of who, we're, who we have with us today and get a sense of what keeps people inspired. So we're gonna start with Kriya and then we'll work our way this way. Kriya. Um, good evening, everyone. Before I get started, I just wanna shout out the Young Women's Freedom Centers here. We have Chalk here. We have five elements in the house. I think it's important just to know that we have a whole, the mission, San Francisco, uh, we don't do this work by ourselves. We do this in collaboration. And our partners are here. Our, our, our organizing family is here. So my first introduction to the system was at 15. And it's not easy to live in San Francisco. Everyone knows that. I think when you come from a family that, uh, you know, you you do your best, you're working class, you do your best to provide what you can for your kids, but life is tough. There's a lot of opportunity for kids to get into things that aren't, aren't so great. Um, and there's a lot of peer pressure to look certain ways and to wear certain things, especially in a very flashy city like San Francisco. So my introduction to the system was through stealing. And that was literally just to make sure that I had clothes to go to school with and decent shoes. Um, my last interaction with the system was in 93. And that last interaction probably was the most important because it's where I met a woman named Sandy Close who led an organization called Pacific News Service. And she was just creating a newspaper called Youth Outlook Magazine. Mm. And she had done a focus group with folks inside Juvenile Hall. And anybody that's been in Juvenile Hall knows that if you want to get out of your room and eat pizza <laughs> that a guest brings, <laughs> you go to the groups, whether you know what they're doing or not. <laughs> and there to eat the pizza, I, I talked a lot. <laughs> and she said, there's an organization I know that's going to be starting. And it's through a place called the Coming to the Sun Coalition, and they work with girls. And they're starting a, a, a an organization for girls that have been homeless and involved in the streets and the life. And I'll pass your name on to the woman that's running it. And I was one of the first six girls to be part of what is now known as the Young Women's Freedom Center. 
And I think the reason why that was so important is because it was the first place where instead of being told what to do, I was asked what I wanted to do. Mm. And I think that for me, that was it. It let me know that there were people that actually cared and people that wanted to hear my voice and people that didn't think I was a bad person and that I had agency and that I was smart and I could do great things and I could help my community and give back. So, yeah. Thank you, Kriya. And next we'll hear from Marlene Sanchez. Thank you. Thank you, Socorro. And just feel really honored to be able to be in community and be here with, with folks whose shoulders I stand on. Mm -hmm. There is uh, so much work that, that was done even before I came into the work. Uh, so many organizations that opened the doors to me. And so I'm um, really grateful. Um, Alfredo, when you did Calles, like um, Alfredo used to come outreach to me when I was in the mission. Um, and it really taught me a lot about meeting people where they are because there was a, a, a time where somebody met me where I was and I, I didn't necessarily have to walk into an organization uh, because during those times we, we just weren't walking into organizations. Um, and so um, that has left such an impact on me because to this day, 20 some years later, I meet people where they are because of people like Alfredo and people like Ray who met me where I was. So thank you uh, for, for inviting me. And also feel really grateful for the opportunity to just reflect. I think it's, we don't get that moment as often as we would like. It's just an opportunity to think back, like what was happening in the 90s? What was, and we know that we have to, we have to learn about what was happening before and what is happening currently and, and in order to continue to create spaces where we reimagine what's possible. So I feel like this, this question mm -hmm. did that for me. It gave me an opportunity to really just reflect. Um, and so the question around like what brought me into the work, um, very similar to Kriya. Kriya actually is one of my mentors and someone who I look up to. And you know, after a while, we just start mentoring each other. Like it's just, there's, <laughs> It's not about age, it's about creating community. And so to be able to see young people like Kriya out in the community also gave me a lot of a lot of inspiration. So thank you, Kriya. I I grew up in juvenile hall. And so this this place, yeah, I, I caught my first case in in sixth grade in middle school. I was I was eleven years old. I was got in a fight at school because uh I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's still like this today, but there was a lot of, of, of fights in middle schools. I mean, I'm hearing from middle school kids right now, too. It's, it's not much has changed in terms of like what is happening in school. But the difference is that I went to a school that was primarily black and brown and Asian and low income. And so the response to those kids, it looks very different to the response to kids in middle school and in other communities. So the response was to call the gang task force, to call the police. Well, it was my first introduction to gangs. I was like, who is the gang task force? I had to like ask my older sister who she knew who they were. And I always say like that was my that was my introduction. Later on, I ended up joining a gang because I was like, I'm already being treated as if I'm in a gang. So I might as well actually have the protection of a gang. It just made sense. And 
what I was looking for is is community and spent a lot of my years in and out of, of the detention center and and after and met amazing people. And I think that is one of the common things you'll hear is that it is not the institution. Sometimes it's not even the programs. It is the people, the people that connect with you while you're in these spaces. It is people like Jack Jackwell and people who I remember from my time in the system that really made an impact on me. But also when I got when I got out, my one of my first things was I was I was at the Young Women's Freedom Center and it was again similar to Korea. It was like the first time I actually got a job to go back into the community and be seen in a different light. Instead of somebody who was trouble which was my nickname, <laughs> coincidentally. But uh, somebody who was a problem, I, I, it was an opportunity to be seen as somebody who actually has solutions, who actually has a, a voice. And a lot of my the, the foundation of the work that I do today really just comes from the teachings that I learned at the Young Women's Freedom Center. Uh, but I got to go back into juvenile home because as, as many of us who've been incarcerated, the first thing we want to do is like reach back and 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 reach back for the folks we left behind. And we knew then that places like this were not places that were going to support our healing, that were going to support us in general. And so I know we're going to have more of a conversation. So I'll stop there so Alfredo can talk, but excited to just continue to talk about what did we learn during that time and how do we use that to really help us think about the, the future. And again, I'm really excited about the, the generation of folks who is leading this work. I'm not in San Francisco leading the work. And so I feel really humble to be invited. I think of so many people who should be up here having this conversation, but um, really excited to, to just start it. So thank you. Thank you, Marlene. They called you trouble? <laughs> well, now you're causing good trouble, yeah. right? Right on. And now we're here from Alfredo Bojorquez. Alfredo. Buenas noches a todos. Uh, first of all, I have a message of inspiring love from Ray Balbaran, who could not be with us tonight. And I also want to recognize the space here at Brava and thank uh, Stacy, the executive director, who is also has benefited from the advocacy work that we've done to do intervention work because uh, she also receives funding from CCYF, Department of Children, Youth, and Family, for the running crew. And I'm very proud that my eldest daughter during high school was a participant here and during her undergraduate, uh, undergraduate experience state, came back to be an assistant coordinator here in, in the running crew. So many props for this space. Um, in 1979, I found myself in detention at YGC, what's now called the uh, Juvenile Justice Center. Uh, I met a man named Fred Smith, the first African-American public defender in San Francisco, Tuskegee Airmen, who during the interview process says, Alfredo, I see something different about you that's very unique than the other youth that I represent here in, in, in the juvenile court. And I see you live in the Mission District. I'm going to refer you to a friend of mine who started an organization named Jim Queen. And he also worked with Danny Glover during the San Francisco Ethnic Studies Revolt. And the ironic thing is that RAP was located at 2901 23rd Street. I live right next door. <laughs> Never put attention to what was happening there. Um, 
I was connected with a man called Ricardo Caballero, who was the court liaison for rap at that time. And in my involvement in rap, uh, one of the first things that I, I joined was a youth council where I was surrounded by many positive young ladies in the community, Sandy Quadra, uh, Yolanda Amador, Chachi. And we started focusing on, on youth issues. Uh, we collaborated with Mitchell Salazar and the UNI dances, recruiting young people to have a safe space on a Friday night where to go. But we had a turn of events here in the mission that was impacting a lot of us. Uh, we had a curfew and the police department was doing selective enforcement. Off my own stoop, I was taken in at 11 o'clock is when the, the shift uh, would come in. And they would put us in Mission Station for hours, calling your parents at 3 or 4 in the morning, come, come get you, right? So we presented to the Board of Supervisors that this was inhumane. And it was selective enforcement because if you were in the sunset and you got a curfew violation, the most likely result was that the cops would drive you home. So that's, that's, that's how I got started. Fast forward, I'm a college fre freshman. I needed money for rent. Uh, Elisa Miranda was executive director of RAP. Uh, Esperanza Chavari was the board president. And they recommended that I get a halftime position to shadow one of the greatest persons I ever met, Ray Balboron, who was assigned to do intervention in juvenile court and in juvenile hall. I was basically his scribe. I'd go in the afternoons with Ray to interview young people, and I documented everything that was being said. During that course of time, the things that young people were telling us about the conditions and the treatment at Youth Guidance Center were matching because we're there in different times, young people are in different periods of time, but the same incidents were happening. Right. We collected enough information where we filed a brief as friends of the court saying there's institutional child abuse occurring in San Francisco Juvenile Hall. Arlo Smith was the DA at that time. Uh, John DeVandy Camp was the Attorney General for the state of California. Both uh, the district attorney's office and the state uh, attorney general investigated our allegations and they came back and told us that all the thank you for your efforts, but everything was anecdotal and past tense, statutes of limitations, etc. We were very disappointed with those results. And I remember having dinner at Ray's home one night. Excellent cook, by the way. Always, always a treat. And we were a little elevated. And he grabs the phone. I go, what are you doing, Ray? I'm calling the White House. I want to talk to Ronald Reagan. <laughs> a human being answers the phone. And Ray says, I'm a veteran. I'm a, a homeowner. And I'm concerned that kids are dying in our juvenile hall in San Francisco. I want to speak to the president. She goes, well, the president's busy. And I understand the nature of your call. Let me get some more information. And we hung up and didn't think about it. Two weeks later, we get a call from the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division that they found enough evidence historically through a publications that happened here in San Francisco since YGC opened in the 1950s that there is a pattern of abuse and violation of young people's civil rights. They sent their investigator, a paraplegic African-American man, 
And the first thing that we encounter, no access for a wheelchair-bound person, right? They had to put him through the freight elevators. Ray and I were accompanying him. It was so embarrassing. ADA, right? They weren't in compliance. First experience. This is in 84. By 1985, the then Assistant Attorney General for 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 the United States, William Bradford, sent Mayor Diane Feinstein a report on their findings, sustaining that there is civil rights violations in San Francisco Juvenile Hall, and they demanded that they take action to fund alternatives for young people in this county, city and county. And from that experience, we've had the growth of all these organizations that are serving youth that are involved in the juvenile justice system. Again, I had the opportunity to be part of that. There was many things that happened. Uh, Ray Balboron's lives were threatened. His, his, His family was threatened. We lost a very vital program, La Casa de Alternativas, that provided an alternative to young people um, that were facing uh, detention in juvenile hall. Uh, They went after our money, right? Um, And in 1999, when RAP folded, for for many different reasons, our programs weren't defunded. The silver lining in the cloud was that all the other nonprofit youth organizations in the mission stepped up to deal with juvenile justice issues because RAP was always the one that dealt with these topics, right? And again, the silver lining was that the funding spread out and everybody in this community stepped up Horizons and Situto Mission Neighborhood Centers to deal with juvenile justice issues, right? During my tenure at Instituto Familiar de la Raza, La Cultura Cura program, we found that the contractors from the juvenile probation department that were brought on to provide these alternatives for young people were getting screwed. We weren't getting reimbursed for a lot of different reasons. They were using our community funding to pay for workers' comp. Uh, We had an accountant over there that embezzled money. Scandal. That's why the juvenile probation department does not handle its contracts. It's handled by the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, right? And we fast forward to to Mayor Breed's formation of the Blue Ribbon in, in 2019. Then the Board of Supervisors on 11-1 to vote passes the ordinance to close Juvenile Hall down by 19, uh, tw- uh, 2021, and here we are. And we still have the same issues. And I just remember one of the things that, in documenting things for Ray, just inappropriate behavior staff in Juvenile Hall, like men ab- supervising young women showering. And I believe that's still an issue today because right now in San Francisco Juvenile Hall, there's 17 vacant positions. Right now, the staff there are working mandatory overtime. It's good for their pocketbooks, but it's not good for their mental health and how they react to situations with young people. Access to Juvenile Hall for attorneys, social workers, and community groups has been limited because of staff shortages. So here we are with all these recommendations and we're in an impasse. With the realignment of the closure of the California Youth Authority, we as a county are now having to deal with young people who are committed for long-term commitment 
and we are doing a miserable job because services are non-existent and they could say because of the small numbers, but it, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. And today before I came here, I was reminded of the Osmonds person that, that we have up there because we have filed as an office so many complaints about attorney access and agents, uh, as the social workers that there, we have to struggle just to get access to our young people. So things have not changed and we are hopeful that we could get some from some traction in making these recommendations come to 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 issue, to come to light so i'm very thankful and again in san francisco we're a youth resource rich city but this power this entity of detention has not changed thank you thank you alfredo So hearing what the three of you said and Fred bringing it forward to where we're at today, right? I had a, a thought in the last six months, what's been the interaction? I know Kriya, you and I had a really in-depth dialogue on the phone as we were recruiting you to become part of this panel. But I think it's important that you share, you were a member of the working group. And just so you all know, you can get a copy of all the recommendations and the reports. They're all online and you can read them. You had a really great perspective to share about what was the frustration after sitting. And I also think that there was a lot of organizations that lent their staff to go to these meetings and be there. And, and what's happened in the last six months or where do you sit with it now? Yeah, well, I... I haven't been involved in the last six months, but I think what's really important to know is that when the closed juvenile work group had ended, normally a, a work group, when you come up with recommendations, it's your job as the person that wrote those recommendations to mm -hmm. present them to the Board of Supervisors. Right. When the work group ended, we basically were told, thank you very much for your service, and we'll let you know when we present them to the Board of Supervisors. One of the things that had happened is that there were varying degrees of, I would say, varying varying opinions about the purpose of Juvenile Hall mm. and varying opinions really about young people in San Francisco that I think made it really hard for us to create concrete recommendations. Mm. Mm -hmm. In reality, we should have had 60 recommendations tops, ones that were really finite and were vetted through the community. I want to lift up Valentina Sereno, who um, is a Mission Girls, Mission Native. She was the other community member that sat on the Closed Juvenile Hall Work Group. We worked really hard with community members to hold those listening sessions. And there were some great recommendations that came forward from parents whose kids had been in the system and had graduated to the adult system mm. and went to prison mm. from young people that were in the system and had successfully left because they had mentors in the community. Mm. There were these through lines that we saw that always came back to community. What we ended up handing over to the Board of Supervisors was almost 200 recommendations. Wow. Because there was not alignment 
on which recommendations could go forward because there was a split on the work group of people that still believe that juvenile hall is a viable place to condition young people somehow to go back out into the community. And, and I'm not sure what happens when you lock kids up for three, four months at a time, what you think is gonna happen, but many of us that were, that had been there, many of us that had done community work, the Juvenile Justice Providers Association that supported with advocating for a lot of the recommendations and, and endorsed the ones that came from the families and, and the providers, we knew that like we don't need a juvenile hall. Mm -hmm. What we really need is honestly what San Francisco needs. And that is safe, quality housing and places for young people to be and for them to be reunited with their families and for their families to have the resources that are necessary for them to have a quality of life that allow for them to live healthy and safe in San Francisco. And so really, there was 65 of those recommendations, not wow. 200 and something. So those recommendations are still out there. And what I do know is happening right now is that Katie Miller, the chief probation officer for juvenile, she actually did see some, some of those recommendations mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. said, I'm going to move forward on some of them and found some money in her budget to bring in yet more consultants right? <laughs> to basically vet the recommendations that came from the community were actually the right recommendations. Um, and attempted to also try and validate the positions of the staff and probation there and wanted community to work with them to actualize these recommendations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I know as of now is that there is a plan in place. That plan came from her findings mm -hmm. to rehabilitate and renovate juvenile hall. Mm. If I'm correct, the last count was that there was 18 young people in juvenile hall. I believe there was one girl, everyone else, four girls, three girls. And that the recommendation is based off of numbers, which we play all day at community-based organizations, right? <laughs> really, we only need like 20 beds. And that's really because no young person should ever be held uh, in juvenile hall because they are a ward of the court mm -hmm. and don't have placement, which we know a lot of times is what juvenile hall is used for. We were well aware of that when advocates came forward to demand that juvenile hall be, be deconstructed, put out of its misery, and that we find some place in San Francisco to build this secure place for young people to be. We were really told that the red tape came from all of the permits and having to go to the community and survey the community. If we're going to put a house and we're going to put kids that have records in there, we're going to have to talk to everybody in the neighborhood. And nobody's going to want to renovate a house. Nobody's going to want to sell it to the city. There's very little properties. We were told everything under the sun. And ultimately, what I realized in hindsight, it was because they never wanted to do it in the right. first place. They're derailing to the goal. Yeah. So that's where we're at. Wow. Go we're, ahead, Alfredo. We're at, we're at 30 young people detained to this date. Three are young, young ladies. Thank you for that. 
When I, when I think about you saying that, and I think about all the hours and the effort, one thing is I was in a conversation last night with Estela Garcia, and we were talking about when you are committed to this work, right? You see it all the way through, and it takes from you, right? And I'm sure it, it's, it's been disappointing that people put a lot of time and a lot of hours, but also that 55 years later, we're talking about the same thing again. I remember my first trip uh, coming to rap, and Alfredo trained me to do the work up at Juvenile Hall. And, um, you know, it was a benefit that I spoke Spanish because we, there was a lot of young people that were incarcerated at, during that time that were Spanish-speaking. But what it took, right, and you present a plan and you, you dream that the kid's going to get out or the young woman's going to get out and, and then nothing's put in place at home and there's so many things going on. And then they land back out at Juvenile Hall. And at that time, it was really around battling with the POs because they were so uncooperative, right? And when I think about, I think the count is 88 staff up there. And now Fred report telling us that there are probably understaffed and who knows what is really going on now, right? We don't have a Fred and a Ray reporting with what's happening. So thinking of that, I think, well, what's, what's an action that maybe, Marlene, you can answer, that maybe a recommendation, because I know your work is at a, at a larger scale and talking about getting people out of jail. What do we need to put in place? Let's talk about what could be something, what we know can happen, but how should we move with this? Yeah, I mean, Probably I'll just really say uh, when you ask to like yeah. what what happens. I mean, we know that the longer somebody is incarcerated, the actually it decreases somebody's quality of life. It decreases your ability to earn earn more. There's treating this. This is a, a public health issue, and we know right that more jails do not create public safety. We know police do not create public safety. And so, but there are these incentives for these institutions to continue to build. I think we've, we've seen this over and over again over the years that there is, it is not driven by the fact that like the data shows that it is actually caught that, that actually putting young people in solitary confinement causes more harm, that the longer you have a young person incarcerated, it causes more harm. The data proves it, but the, the incentive of these institutions continues to be to just continue to build something bigger, put more beds and fill them. We know that it is also racially motivated because we know that it, this is like, we know who's in these detention centers. At uh, Ella Baker Center, we've been tackling things via legislation. I mean, I think I don't have the solutions. I think it, it's going to take like multi-pronged solution, multi-generational. I think every generation is making some kind of impact. I know when I was at the Young Women's Freedom Center for, for 18 years, we were able to make some impact around even just providing like gender responsive services. Mm -hmm. There was a time where that was like unheard of, like things like getting young moms visits with their kids or like supporting young moms who had just given birth to like nurse their children and um, and the fact that we needed to tend to to the specific needs of of young people, and, and I always think of that as like the like the middle era from yeah. like what what I'm hearing like Alfredo talk about and and Korea, 
but we've been tackling, we've also been tackling things with, with legislation that challenges the racism, mm. that challenges the incentives to continue to, to, to build b- bigger juvenile halls. Um, I think just shutting them down is not enough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We know that they will like reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. They will grow a new head. And our approach has been like, let's empty them mm-hmm. and let, then let's shut them down and then let's reimagine something. But mm-hmm. we are definitely up against a beast of, and we are up against a, a system that sees us as profit this is um, modern day slavery and not much has changed in terms of like these are bodies of young people that are they're going to profit off of the consultants the staff I think um, the fact that we can't find a solution for 20 kids Mm. is I just I, I can't imagine that like we can't build like build an alternative, but those incentives are are not there. I think we've been critiqued in the in, in the process of like closing prisons, um, about not having a component that addresses labor. So, but I think folks have have gotten really creative. We're definitely not trying to because now even some of the the, the staff at the California Youth Authority that is closing are like we're gonna be violence interrupter I'm like the hell you are yeah. <laughs> like you caused the vi- like I mean you've been trained to be violent and so and we know culture shift doesn't just happen overnight yeah, because you have right. a different title or you 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 don't change the culture of an institution because you change the name and put rehabilitation in front of it and we've seen that strategy over and over again but yeah I mean we we definitely have to to tackle yeah um, some of the the, the structural racism right. and the incentives to continue to profit off. Of Excellent point. Excellent. And here's the I know Alfredo, you here's want. the hypocrisy, right? One of the main issues is venue. Where do we do this, right? And the other hypocrisy is there's major efforts to revitalize downtown. There's lots of vacant buildings in San Francisco that we could refurbish to make this happen, but the hypocrisy of community safety and citizen safety is bullshit because locking up kids does not make the community safer. That's right. It makes angry young people, okay? And we have an administration now where the mayor has racially profiled a whole Latin American group to blame the cause of the fentanyl crisis. Hello, these kids are not the, 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 the chemists making these. These are young people who are trafficked and who are being taken advantage of. Right? right. So when we have those kind of attitudes in our city administration, we're not going to get anywhere. But we could pour resources into from vacant to vibrant. Why can't we have that resource to get the venue for an alternative? Thank you. Right on. So part of this dialogue includes having the audience. If you want to make a statement, this is the opportunity now. Go ahead and, and identify who you are. Go ahead. So Larissa Uganquadra, Director of Cares in San Francisco. We have our team also from Second Chance. Thank you all for your interventions. So two things I wanted to comment. To your point about monetizing young people, I heard it's $300,000 per youth at the hall. And... When I did, you said 85 to 30 youth, it's like three staff to a youth. But in the community side, 
-hmm. It's like 10 youth to a staff member, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. So the equation doesn't pan out in terms of prevention and investments in our young people so they can thrive. So if you could speak a little bit about the monet, let's go deeper, like let's put the numbers on it about monetizing. But also if you could talk about, I was at RAP, also a staff member with Corvia. I used to go in the hall, do writing workshops with young uh, Spanish-speaking youth. And at the time, the city of San Francisco was deporting young people back to their countries of origin. And those of us from Central America know that the gangs in Central America were exported from California from these detention centers, from Juvenile Hall, from the, the criminal injustice system. And if you could reflect on that, tell us a little bit about, because we're all connected, right? And so now we're like recriminalizing young people, particularly migrants, even though this country, this state, was a big catalyst for what's happening in the region in terms of gang violence. So if you could maybe speak to that. And Fred, if you could elaborate a little bit more about the criminalization, the detention of migrants that are not being released solely because they don't have loving adults. Go ahead, Alfredo. Well, foremost, we cannot change the way we treat young people when we continue to model like correctional facilities for adults. Okay. You, when you don't have that change of culture, when you don't have staff buy-in, one of the first recommendations when we had these consulting groups come in is that they needed to get rid of all the current staff members because if they don't buy in, you can't uh, institutionalize the change. And I understand because I am also a 1021 uh, city worker union member and I'm shop steward and my union also represents the people that work in the institution, right? The so-called counselors who are, for all purposes, guards, because that has not changed, right? And when we have the crises that are happening in our home countries, the immigration flow, and young people getting caught up in crime, the blatant racism that we see on a daily basis because young people don't have the caring adults, right? We have to mobilize and we find those caring adults. We, 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 we find them. And we also have a scary moment coming up. We're gonna have a change in the judicial person that's gonna run the juvenile hall and the, the new person we're having has made it very clear he's not sympathetic to these young people. And another issue we have, many of these young people being arrested here are not residents of our county. They're coming from Alameda. And what I fear right now is that what we as an, an office have been doing to, to represent these young people where they have less damaging results, where they have uh, pleas that are immigra immigrant, immigration safe, are going to be lost because they're going to say that these young people are not our county residents. Let's resolve the matter and take, uh, send them back to their county of origin. Right? So that's a very scary uh, proposition because the welfare and institution code in California says very clearly that we don't have to do that, that we could treat young people in an informal supervision, right? But again, probation officers are tasked with, well, I can't do that. They're not in this county, but yet us as providers can do it, right? And I'm very fortunately that I'm from this community and I continue to keep my ties with IFR, Carecen, Horizons Unlimited, 
that we're able to join together, present tangible, concrete alternatives to the court for consideration. But we're also facing a conservative court that's coming in. Mm. And we have to pull together to make sure that we're presenting viable alternatives, competent alternatives. And I do believe as a community we can do that, but we have to roll up our sleeves because this is a new challenge that, that we're facing. Right, right. Thank you, Alfredo. I know you had a question. Hi, everyone. My name is Tatiana Lewis. I'm an organizer with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. I would say my question is, how do we change the narrative of our youth? Because I'm formerly incarcerated. I'm now 25 years old, but my first time ever being incarcerated, I was 13 years old. A fight broke out at school, same thing, and I was arrested at school. Like, the whole school actually seen me and three other individuals took in a paddy waggy, and our parents was, like, crying and things like that. We mm. was incarcerated mm. for about a month. And then from there, though, the cycle was, like, violation after violation. And so it was a revolving door for me. I've even been to the group homes. I've been to Euclid Group Home on 823 Euclid Avenue. That's crazy. I still remember the address. <laughs> um, and so I'm just wondering. And now I'm a student at UC Berkeley. Now. Yeah. Thank you. Go Bears. And now I'm at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and just making a way and uh, making a change for our youth. And I'm wondering, like, how do we change that narrative that people automatically think of black and brown individuals? Like, it's like when we come in a room, they automatically, like, shut us down. They automatically close us out. And it's like, how do we get us out of that box okay. area? Thank you for your question. Kriya or Marlene, you want to take it on? I mean, I'll just start with saying that, yeah, it, it is critical that we change the narrative. I mean, we're just seeing sometimes we're just seeing some like like the repetition of these narratives. And so but what we know is that they have a, the the whatever you want to call it, the opposition, the enemy, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, have a, they, they've been consistent and they have this like machine, right? That's been, and they control the, the, the news. I mean, I think places like this, like these kind of podcasts is important. I think, Larissa, what you were saying is like the creating of alternative media, but also um, there, I do feel like we need to have a little bit more of like a coordinated effort to change the narrative because by ourselves and our little organizations and at like even if we're like a mid to big size organization, it is small compared to the like the left's ap apparatus around creating this like false narrative or the that we are living in a time right now where fear mongering is like what is driving even our, our politics. And so it is not like coincidence and it isn't new it is actually old but i don't a lot of us don't have the 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 infrastructure to like go against that alone and so i definitely think like how do we join forces create mm -hmm. coordinated efforts and use multiple ways to get in, in multiple media and and owning or like media stream because again i mean some of this um, mainstream media isn't picking it up and saying like I want to do a story on this and we we try I mean we we, we definitely try to um, hit them up as well too but uh, we are gonna have to create our own alternative media but lots of thoughts on this but Korea you want to chime in yeah I mean I think you said something that was really important you said how do we change the narrative for black and brown youth and I think that that's really poignant because young people in the sunset 
they do just as many dumb things as kids <laughs> in the mission or in Bayview. In fact, in, in Alameda County, Berkeley has one of the lowest uh, number of young people in uh, Alameda County's juvenile hall. And why is that? Because the majority of the kids that get picked up there are white and the majority of them have access to lawyers. It's a small town where the police officers know um, the families and they, as Alfredo was saying earlier, right? Like kids get driven home. We don't get driven home. I think one of the other ways, like our storytelling is really important. The fact that we own our narratives is really important. I think one of the things I've always really loved about the programs in San Francisco and the people that run the programs is that they believe that young people are sacred. And, and it's super important that that's instilled in young people constantly. The media is using our young people right now to push a narrative around public safety. They are the scapegoat. And I think it's important that we push back and that we do that collectively. When we see these stories where the headlines are really scathing and they're meant to evoke fear because it's a group of young people or they want to glorify, right? It'll say something like band of young people and then you read the article and it's like two kids, right? <laughs> yeah. We have to be calling the news outlets and demanding that they correct those narratives. We, the same way that we did when they used to name our kids in the articles and we fought back against them putting our kids' names in there for the sake of their future. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's a lot that can be done. I think the other thing is, is we have to start looking at all of these fights more long-term. Mm. They're not going to happen tomorrow. So how are we chipping away at things today? And it does happen by doing our own storytelling. It does happen by getting as many people to write editorials. It does happen by utilizing social media, which we know our young people pay attention to. And not just using it to say, that's messed up, but to actually say, did you know that this is happening? Like, let me school you on some stuff. And young people are really great at that. I mean, I learned so much from TikTok now. <laughs> Yeah, But I think it is really important that when people say, I can't believe how many young people are like out here doing crime. We say, really? Where'd you learn that from? What's the statistics? Where did that come from? Who told you that? Do you know anybody? Have you had your car broken into? Oh, that didn't happen in your community. Oh, you don't live there? Because pushing back mm -hmm. makes people go, well, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe that you're right. That didn't happen to me. And no, I am just fear mongering. So I think the more we push back, we we do start to create a sense of like questioning that requires people to think more critically about what they're saying themselves, but also to think about what am I buying into and how how is it impacting me and the way that I'm seeing myself, mm. my safety, and and am I fear mongering? Like, am I actually pushing a narrative that actually isn't true because I actually don't know anybody that's got their car broken into. And actually I've never, I have never got my car broken into, right. Or I've never been. Yeah. And that's, if you ask the majority of people, they'll tell you that's the truth. Like I, I don't, that's never happened to me, but I've heard it so much. I feel like it has mm. and perception becomes reality. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. And so, and the, and the right knows that very well. Donald Trump, I hate to say his name, but he got up so many times to say so many things that weren't true. 
And it didn't matter whether they were true because once they were out there, perception became reality and he had tons of people that regurgitated that information. I'm not saying we should lie, but I'm saying that we should make perception, the perception that we need to put out there is the truth. And we need to reinforce that it's actually reality, that there are young people out here doing great things. And there are community-based organizations that have been supporting those young people throughout their whole life. We have young people that are doing, I mean, like this whole neighborhood. I, I mean, there's so many young people, including myself and Marlene, that like are doing great things that once people thought we were bad. And I feel like that's the case for the majority of young people mm -hmm. that end up engaging in the system. Thank because you for Crime that. is going down. Go and I just looked at some statistics around the theft and we are like down almost, at least in, in Alameda County, 8% from last year. But why did they, were there like a hundred and new police deployed, eight, uh, highway patrol deployed in, in, into the streets because that, that, that same reason. But right, cri right. And crime is going down nationally. Right. So. Yeah, so, so data shows that juvenile crime across the country, it's at its lowest. But how do we change that narrative? Because during the pandemic, the smash and grab, that's, that, that makes headlines, right? And I, I'm just going to say it. I'm not a fan of Willie Brown, but Willie Brown has control of editorial power here for the Chronicle and the Examiner, if you didn't know that. If, if you remember when his administration was happening, he suppressed all the, all the stories about crime and everything in San Francisco because of, of the tourist industry. Yeah. Okay? But we are blessed to have publications like Pacific News Service, the beat within that humanizes the young people that are involved in our system. And I'm forever Good thankful for Sandy Close for bringing those things into our juvenile hall. I am very thankful to to Mission Local, El Tecolote, for covering these things. And again, we look at the data, juvenile crime across this nation, it is at a low. It is at a low. Thank you for that, Alfredo. Thank all three of you. I mean, this is really, really important. I'm glad that the questions are stimulating these thoughts. And maybe even out of this comes a, a roadmap to, to figure out, to move towards the ultimate goal. If it is just repurposing that facility or keeping at priority, how do we stop what's happening, the dehumanizing of our children, that young people are incarcerated, that the, the monetization, all these things that are happening that we start moving that. And you're right, Korea. this is not, this is a long-term fight. This is a long one. And it doesn't just, if we attack one thing, then we have to go after it all. And I think that collaboration and all those words that people talk about, they work, but it's also about action. How do you take action? So thank you for that. Yes, go ahead, your question. Katie. Shout out to the Be With Thee. I was thinking about the museum when I was sitting up here yes. earlier. Okay, so I have like three questions. My name is KD. Mm -hmm. I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I am associated and work for a nonprofit and yada, yada, yada. But today I'm just here as a community member. I'm just here as an impacted community member. My first question is around the DJJ closure. Is there a realignment talk around that? Is the youth coming here? Is that why we're at the 30? Like, what's going on with that? You wanna? 
Well, with the realignment, yeah, question after that. with the realignment of the whole state of California, with the closure of the California Youth Authority or Department of Youth Justice, every county now in the in the state is tasked where providing secure tract is the term that is used, where young people are committed uh, to long sentences in juvenile hall. Uh, right now in San Francisco, the longest commitment is a seven-year commitment, and again. Different jurisdictions are doing it differently. Unfortunately, San Francisco is doing a miserable job just because of the, the, low, the low numbers we have and they have not been able to tailor any equitable programming for these young people. We have barely gotten computers for young people, laptops for young people in the secure track in San Francisco to be able to do uh, college or, or, or community college courses. It's been uh, it's been ridiculous. The the resources, the human resources, are not there, right? And as a county, we are failing miserably. Uh, we know other jurisdictions are more advanced just because of the larger numbers, and it's a big responsibility for 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 the, the different jurisdictions to implement secure track. And we're just lucky that our numbers are low. But the young people that are committed long term to our San Francisco Juvenile Facility are not getting the services they deserve. Thank you for that. Is there another question? Yeah. And so my last question is, like, what's the strategy? I guess moving forward, you guys already said basically that the city and county didn't shut it down. We really ain't even talking about closing this right. down no more. Right. What's the strategy moving forward? Like, are we? Can we point out? the 88 to the 30, the money, like what? what's the strategy that we deploy in moving forward to continue well, this fight to shut it down and really put together something different? Go ahead, Priya. So I'm going to be really honest. I don't have any faith in the city of San Francisco to be able to shut down. I believe that what they're trying to do is repurpose it. Mm -hmm. And when you slap lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. I think our only strategy is to actually starve the beast. And that requires really strong prevention and intervention programs. I think it's really important to, to note that the same reason why we have young people going into juvenile hall is the same reason why we have so many homeless people. Because there is not enough housing and there is not enough treatment. And when I say that, and there's not enough services that are created by the city that are on demand. And what I mean by that is it should not take you two weeks to get into a program the minute that you decide you want to get clean, right? The other problem is, is that we see young people as one solo entity. And the reality of it is, is that they're part of a family unit that, have, that actually needed support and resources before that young person decided to start mm -hmm. doing whatever it was that ended up up in, in juvenile hall, when you start to have conversations with parents, you'll realize that they had been asking for help a long time ago and didn't get the help that they needed. And when they tried to get referred to a service that could have been right around the corner, they were never referred to that service. Probation the, the year that we started this process in 2019, probation referred one kid to 
there were 30 services that they could have provided them, referred them to and, and referred only one kid that year. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't see it getting any better, not because it can't, but because of the ideology that people believe young people are inherently bad. And that's now wrapped up in this whole idea that like, in order for us to survive in San Francisco as employees of the city and county, I need to keep my job, even though my job is inherently bad for young people. And we're not going to ever be able to have a real conversation around shutting down juvenile hall unless we start having that conversation. Yeah, that's right. Because fundamentally, like you have to have values that believe young people are sacred. And you have to believe that families should be together. And you have to believe that families can take care of each other if they had the things that they need. When you do that, you have families that could stay together. You have young people that can go home. You have resources that a family can go to. You have a supportive network that you can call on instead of calling the police on your own kid, which a lot of parents don't realize is harmful to their young person because they're going to end up on a track into juvenile hall that they can't get out of. So I personally don't believe that the solution is about continuing to fight to close it down. We just need to get more coordinated about the way that we serve young people and the way that we actually collaborate together. And it can't be about the money. It has to be rooted in the young person and what we want to do for these families. And we have to starve the beast. We have starve to just beast. make sure that our young people never touch that door to detention. Starve the beast. Let's do that. Starve the beast. Do you have a, this will be the last question we'll take and then we'll come back. Okay, so I'm Julia Arroyo. I'm just here, born and raised in the city, but sorry, y'all, I'm giving y'all my last. We just had a really powerful training with a lot of young folks uh, to develop a speaker's grill to be able to combat some of this messaging, but it's really from their voices and what alternatives look like for them. So uh, my question is around uh, prevention and the harm reduction piece of it before I go off on a, uh, just giving a little bit of testimonial from experiencing that facility as a really young person. I wanna say that I first entered into the system before I was even verbal. And that was through the foster care system through family separation. And through uh, my journey there for the search for what home was, right? And I navigated the streets of San Francisco. Street economy only happens really when you don't include the people, right? The, the young people, the families that actually have built San Francisco, when you don't include an, an economy that you can actually envision yourself and say, I, I could be that store owner or I could have that house or whatever it is, not a lot of us can look and say that, like, I can I can do those things. And so entering inside of that facility as a young person, I was in the search for a home, and I was navigating that underground street economy. And I want to give a story that when I was inside of that facility, that one of the counselors handed me a phone number, and he said, when you get out, give me a call. And then when I got out, I'm thinking that this is another adult that is gonna uh, support me, which propositioned me for sex for a bag of Coke. And so those are the type of things that is personal to me. Mm. This, the closure of this facility is very personal to me because I know firsthand the abuse that happens inside of that facility. So 
I now have been had a calling to be into this role as the co-executive director of the Young Women's Freedom Center. Thanks. Right now, there's a lot of talks about pushback against harm reduction, that it's just limiting our conversations to needle exchanges and things like that. And we'll, and to me, like, when I was 15 years old, if, when we asked the question of what would you tell your younger self, and I always say not a damn thing, you couldn't <laughs> tell me nothing because I felt very alone at the time. And so <laughs> there needed to be some sure. type yeah. of harm reduction with me. I didn't... I didn't get to leave that facility until my 18th birthday. That's when they that's when they said that okay, that you can go now. And then I entered right into county jail. That was that was my next step right there. And so, can you give me like a little bit of pointers or anything y'all are my predecessors, y'all are my teachers, so anything that you could say on that piece. Well, the pipeline is real. The pipeline is real. One of the issues we have here in San Francisco when we have the resources that are benefited to the Juno Probation Department as the probation officers are the gatekeepers for the referrals. And that needs to change. I access those services, but I have to go to court and ask the judge to order probation department to make the referral. That should not happen. They have resources at their fingertips. And again, like you said in 2019, one referral they don't utilize the services that are existing under their contracts and that is a problem as long as they're the gatekeepers for the referral it's not going to work thank you quick Carrie, you want to add to that yeah i just i really you know there was a there was a part of the the recommendations that called for these mentors and when we had talked to a lot of young people in those listening sessions, there were a couple of things that really like became really finite. And, and one was that young people that are on probation don't get the chance to actually build the skills that they need to participate in the things that are going to keep them out of the system. I'll give you an example. Who knows what the first condition of probation is? It's it's actually to not come in contact oh, yeah, with, with the police. Oh yes. The second one is to go to school. I spent maybe 12 days of my seventh grade year in school. The rest were on the bus and probably like down here and like going around the city on the bus. I didn't have a practice of going to school. Mm -hmm. When you're on probation, you're automatically expected to go to school five days a week. If you had problems, if your problems started in school, if the people, if you have been bused across the city to a school because you got kicked out of the one that you were supposed to go to and now you're in another neighborhood and you have to navigate how to get there and you're crossing lines that you're not supposed to, communities you're not supposed to, like you have to find ways to get there. And I will tell you right now, I would rather go back to juvenile hall than I would to get my ass beat in a community where nobody knows me and I could possibly lose my life trying to get to school. Why we don't give a leeway, why we don't say the first 30 days, the first 90 days of somebody on probation, we allow for them to mess up, right? We allow for you not to go to school. We allow for you 
to miss calling us we as probation officers, whatever it may be, right? Because you have to build that muscle. It's like going to a job and like not expecting to mess up the first week, right? Why do we expect kids to go to school five days a week when they haven't gone to school in three months? Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. we start off with two days? Can we start off with three days and work our ways up? Can we incentivize you when you get there? Right. Because we know that young people's desires are what need to be fed beyond just their needs, right? That's right. This is all harm reduction. Yeah. These are all forms of harm reduction. Can we, can we find alternative ways to get you to school? Can we give you a lift account? Yeah, that's right. Can we get your mom, can we help her get a car? Because if we're spending $300,000 on a young person being locked up in a juvenile hall, I'm sure we could use a little bit of that money to get a car for somebody so you don't go back, right? Yeah. But these are the ways in which like, we have to start thinking outside of the box. That's right. Because the the box has been built a long time ago. It's looked the same way. Like, God bless Ray Balboron, who first started this. When we started this in 2019, we went back to Ray. Yeah. And we said, we stand on your shoulders. You did this first. You, Roberto, Alfredo, we need to know what are the lessons you learned Mm -hmm. from the work that you've done and the fight that you did. And one of the first things he said is, it's always going to go back to the community, Korea. Right. It's we are the answer. We're the answer. So the other thing is, is harm reduction is also connecting young people to people in their community that they can trust and making sure that those those adults who have an investment in the young person, not in their punishment. That's the problem. I'm not going to a program if I don't come to that program. Your our relationship changes because you're going to call my P.O. Right. These are all forms of harm reduction that honestly don't take anything to do other than caring about the young person and wanting them to win, wanting them to get off probation, wanting them to be whole, investing in their families, making sure that they have the things that they need. A young person is not going to stay at home if their PG&E is off. I can't be on my phone. I'm not going to be home. I'm going to be in the streets. Why can't we take some of that money and actually pay phone bill, uh, pay PG&E bills for a couple of months? Like we we have to get innovative and I'm going to be really honest. It's on community to do that because That's probation right. is not going That's to. That's right. Thank you for that. And, it, and it, I was just, I leaned over to tell Alfredo that when rap was in its heyday, right? And I was blessed to be there. I was blessed to experience that, to be creative, to think outside of the box with folks like Mitch, with Ray, Ernesto Salazar, all these folks that, that, we would say, how are we going to get them to back to school? They've never even been to school. Elisa Miranda was brilliant. And she would say, Socorro, you're expecting too much because they haven't been in school. When I, when I was the director of the rap school, the, we had to dig deep and be creative and think what's going to motivate them to get here. They don't know how to be here. They never were, they never were taught to be here. So what do we do? And so we started creating incentives uh, breakfast with Socorro, whatever it was, right? But I think if this, we as a community, this community has done it. Historically, they have proven that it, it makes sense to reconnect this sacred child back to its community, to its family. Being, I, and I had asked Fred to comment on that because that's why we're here, why Rama was born, the Rama Blueprints, is the Real Alternatives Media Archive. 
It's the project to document all the good things that were done, the historical things that worked, the lessons learned, so that the new generation of folks, they learn from that. You look up there and, and this banner that we recreated, and you stuff that it says La Casa, the, uh, the En Barrio Warfare, the Youth Council. When I was talking to Jim about this, Jim Queen, Darren and I, and to Ray the other day, because I talk to Ray all the time still. Ray still calls me. And he says, what's missing is the youth leadership and reconnecting it back to community. And so I want to remind us of that. And you reminded me of that right now. And Alfredo, I know you were going to say something about that too. So what do you think? So I'm going to pump my unit a little bit, uh, the public defender's office. We have an educational attorney that's assigned to every young person that we represent because education issues always come up. And we've been very successful in not having school issues be a reason why to prolong or extend probation. Academics are not part of the juvenile court. We're here to support them, right? I remember the development of the RAP school mm -hmm. as, as a tutorial center, GD, et cetera. But what we demonstrated to the city and county of San Francisco, the unified school district, is we had retention. And what's this talk, well, what do we mean by that? ADA, average daily attendance. That's how the schools are funded and that's how they responded. But I'm also very proud that through our efforts to work on educational issues, that we have great partners like Jaime and Jody here who run <laughs> incredible programming at downtown high school. They do amazing work. They meet the young people where they're at. And of course, attendance is a struggle, but we have to meet other needs of young people to get them to school. There are many issues why truancy exists or why young people don't engage in education, right? But to have truancy and school attendance as a part of extending probation, we're, we're winning this battle here in San Francisco because that's not the function of the juvenile probation department. Thank you. Marlene. Yeah, just, it, it, it was so well said, so I don't have much to add, but I will say that to Julia's point, the, a lot of the harm reduction work is under attack right now. I think in particular because of what we are, are hearing and seeing around some of the fentanyl uh, issues and just a reminder that harm reduction does work, that all of us are harm reduction practitioners mm. in different ways. We don't actually, I, I did needle exchange, I did outreach and that is not the only way. I mean, I'm not going to repeat what, what Kriya and Alfredo have said, but it is really intentional right now. What we are seeing with the harm reduction community is that they are definitely under attack and underfunded. And there is this narrative. We know how these false narratives are playing out around like blaming the, the harm reduction community for, for drug overdoses or, or, or what's happening. And so, yeah, again, we know that like in every social movement, we have used harm reduction. We have developed the solutions to the, the problems. The Black Panthers, they started a free breakfast program. That's right. That's right. Um, like we've seen it over and over again and we know it works. But yeah, just I've just been seeing and talking to a lot of harm reduction practitioners who are also asking for community to come out and support them because they are 
out in the streets late at night, really meeting people where they are. So when these agencies or these programs have like a two week wait, it is the people that they're meeting on the block or in the corner that is is actually creating those warm handoffs and, and helping folks get to that like two week wait. Well, there's been a lot said, right? A lot of recommendations, a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotion. Este es un empiezo. This is a beginning of a dialogue. And I know there's been a lot of meetings and a lot of recommendations. And and I think that from here, basically, the ball's in your court. I think we can use this platform, use this podcast to come back and talk more, do a follow-up, continue to maybe we get some of those heads that need to be held accountable. I was telling Kriya and Marlene earlier that I wanted to bring a couple of chains If you know the story about Jim Queen in 1970, 1970, But again, this is an empiezo, this is a start, and this is the seed that we're planted. And I know there's already gardens out there, but this is a different seed, and I think we should we can continue to water it. Kriya, and then Marlene, and then Fred, you'll close. Yeah. Well, I I actually just wanted to to um, um, say that young people are out here, and they are taking up leadership, and... They are the ones that are right on. in charge of this fight to close down Juvenile Hall. I want to give a shout out to the Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition, which is comprised of young people from Young Women's Freedom Center, from Five Elements, and from Coleman Advocates. And honestly, without them, they showed up when when those meetings were happening right during on. COVID. Right and on. they were the ones that were pushing to make sure that things that young people did not agree with were not getting passed in that closed Juvenile Hall work group. And they're still here and they're still fighting. And I ask for all of these organizations to have their back and make sure that they're not just put on a pedestal, but that people really listen to them and what they want, because the tokenism is real. Yeah. And and even during those conversations, they were being told, oh, you don't you don't really know what you want. Mm -hmm. But these are young people that have experienced the system. They are young people that are fighting for their families. They're fighting to stay in San Francisco. And they know that the this issue of homelessness and gentrification is intersectional with these issues of juvenile and the criminalization of young people. So I just want to give a shout out to thank my you, folks. Kriya, and thank you for your presence today. I mean, Mar yes, I, I agree. When I think about like who are the the leaders, and I definitely can point to to the youth and young people who are like the bold truth tellers out here, and really, what is then. Our role as like young elders <laughs> work is uh -huh. the elders in the work is to continue to also like do our, our own work. That's right. Um, our mm -hmm. own continue to to really model our own healing and self-care because many of us have like burnt out and come back. And and really, I think in, in every generation, there is um, critique about like what was definitely passed down and what torches were passed and 
Um, I feel like when people talk about the the leadership that's out there, I feel like I could sit down because that's um, right. That's right. you know I'm definitely not retiring because I'm you know not there. But but it it has been really inspiring to see. And and this it's not just in the closed juvenile hall movement, but it is in the free Palestine movement. Oh, it is yeah. in, right. in all of our different social right. movements. It is and and that has been historical too. That young people have been at the forefront. But man, this next generation is like bold. That's and, right, and they are like unapologetic and it is very inspiring and so um, thank you I'm, for that I'm a student now thank you <laughs> Alfredo I just like to say that I'm very thankful for for this community the people who have mentored me the families and young people that let me into their lives because we could be a pain in the ass right because we were trying to help them do the right thing uh, I just celebrated my 60th birthday and I look hey, back on my journey Wow. And I'm really proud of the accomplishments this community has done. And I just want to remind everybody that our our families out there are resourceful. Yeah, yeah. They survive. They endure. And if we could just be there for their time of need and help them, we are committed to that. And again, I'm thankful for this community. Thank you for that. Well, you have been listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. Thank you for being with us today. My name is Socorro Gamboa. I'm your host. Wow. What a powerful and inspiring evening of historical, educational dialogue, complete with powerful testimonies and inspiration. Unfortunately, we have come to the conclusion of this evening's live podcast. We remain hopeful that change is inevitable and acknowledge that the work is not over and will require the tenacity, courage, and fortitude to go forward by whatever means necessary to shut down the Youth Guidance Center and continue to prioritize humanity, compassion, and wellness before criminalization and dehumanization of all our youth and their families. Remember, the youth aren't the criminal, the institution is. We want to thank our panelists, community warriors, and leaders, Alfredo Bojorquez, Marlene Sanchez, and Cria Gomez for their comments and participation. We would also like to thank Brava Women for the Arts for the use of this beautiful space and the Brava staff. Garesen SF and its staff for their continued support as both our community partner and fiscal sponsor. Thank you to Juan Rivera, Kevin Rios Ruiz of Garesen SF's marketing team, Roban San Miguel for the blessing and palabra, and Elena Royal. We also send a big thank you to our community partners, Instituto Familiar de la Raza, the Pacific Resource Hut, and to our sponsors, the San Francisco Foundation, Change Elemental, and the many individuals who graciously gave donations to Rama Blueprints. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. We appreciate your love and support. This episode, live podcast, is dedicated in memory of Noah Gamboa, my nephew, a beautiful and brilliant person who loved the theater lights and became a master lighting technician and a member of our Rama podcast tech team. We will miss you, Noah. Soar like the eagle, rising high amongst the clouds until we meet again. We humbly ask that you support this podcast by donating to the Rama Blueprints podcast by visiting our donation page at caresnsf.org. And remember... To listen is to heal. All power to the people.